Next one. Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. So uh, we are glad for a number of visitors today and very uh, glad for having our friends join us. Uh, whenever this happens, you're kind of jumping in midstream to what we've been studying for quite some time as we've worked our way through the book of Proverbs from beginning to end. We've made it to the chapter, uh, 28th chapter and we're on verse 12. So we'll be looking at chapter 28, uh, verse 12 uh, to 28, the end of the chapter. And uh, we're in this uh, second collection of Solomon's Proverbs that runs from chapter 25 to 29. And so uh, we're toward the end of that little section. Last week we looked at um, what the Bible said about boldness and how biblical boldness uh, is defined. And uh, today uh, we look at uh, factors important for a healthy society, as we've uh, called this sermon uh, an ideal society. Sometimes uh, Proverbs is a challenge because it's not a narrative. It, uh, it's not clear how the different uh, bits of wisdom are connected to each other. But as we've been going through this from uh, end to end, we're seeing uh, that uh, there are markers that set these passages off. And so you'll notice the very first verse and the last verse I'm going to read have uh, part of the verses exactly the same, sort of uh, showing us we have a little unit here on an ideal society. Let's listen now to God's word. When the, when the righteous rejoice, there is great glory. But when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor, but he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. A man burdened with bloodshed will flee into a pit. Let no one help him. Whoever walks blamelessly will be saved, but he who is perverse in his ways will suddenly fall. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. To show partiality is not good, because for a piece of bread a man will transgress. A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. Whoever robs his father or his mother and says, It's no transgression. The same is companion to a destroyer. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. When the wicked arise, men hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us, his people, as we think about it together today. As Philip mentioned in the prayer, one of the concerns that we all have is this upcoming election. And having had the final debate last week, I was reflecting on what a bizarre way a debate is for deciding uh, who we should vote 
for? I mean, after all, what are we looking for? The ability to argue, the ability to make quick comebacks, a solid grasp of the facts, ability to stay calm under pressure, a good sense of humor, stage presence, or sadly, the ability to lie very well with a straight face. What is it that we're looking for in our leaders? And uh, while the president certainly... Um, has a role in promoting the kind of society that we live in. The only probably useful function of the debate is if you can get some window in terms of what the actual agenda is or what's the philosophy or what's the, what's the vision for what our society should be like. And it's probably true that in our country, the people we elect are more often a reflection of the society than they are the movers and the drivers of what the society will be like. And we have to admit that at least large swaths of our society don't want the right things. In other words, the way we evaluate what is good for our society isn't biblical. And so, therefore, how we define an ideal society is broken. And this is something that can affect Christians as well. Oftentimes, uh, we can get sucked into thinking in terms of very short-term or very uh, sort of self-interested ideas and lose track of the bigger picture of what we should really want in our society. And our passage has a lot to say about leadership, about interpersonal relationships, but also about the kind of things that make for a good society, a healthy society, one that is blessed by God. And so these things are important for us to think about as we, as we do vote and engage in the civic process. But they're also important for us to think about in terms of how we contribute to the societies of which we are a part. And certainly, uh, the culture is one part, and we've been talking about this in our Sunday school class in the mornings, which has been very helpful. But our families, right? Our workplaces, any group that we're engaged with is a place where we have an, a, an opportunity to create or to at least labor for the kind of society that God blesses and that God approves of. And so as we look at the passage, uh, the main point I hope you'll see this morning is that in Christ, you and I are to labor for a society characterized by righteousness and by faith. That this is the direction this text points us. And children, if you'd like to draw a picture of uh, what's going on here, I'd like you to draw a picture of what you should do if you, uh, if you sin against another child, whether it's one of your friends or whether it's a sibling. How should you handle that? And you draw the two children uh, interacting and listen because we'll talk about how we should handle sin uh, when we sin against another person. Well, there is an outline in the bulletin, and you can see there the first thing we want to notice is that a healthy society is characterized by righteousness. We see this in verses 12 and 28, the frame for this passage. Again, uh, there are similarities. Both verses speak about the righteous, speak about the wicked, and speak about hiding. In fact, the second half of verse 12 but when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. That is verbatim the first half of verse 
28 at the end of the passage, when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. And so these two verses set the agenda for the whole passage. And we've said this is what's been helpful about studying the book from one end to the other, as we see there is structure in what happens. And when we get this in our minds, it helps us understand how the individual Proverbs within this section relate to one another. We're talking about life in society when we talk about rulers and how people behave in the society. Uh, One definition of society is a group of individuals involved in persistent social interaction. And so this is supportive of what I said earlier, that you and I are engaged in a society at a bunch of different levels where where we're having persistent social interaction. This church, by the way, is one such example. This church itself is a society. Well, verse 12 tells us that when the righteous rejoice, or some translations will say when the righteous triumph, which may make more sense here, there is great glory. Um, The idea is that when there is righteous leadership, it is a cause for celebration. It is a cause uh, for confidence. And conversely, as the second half of the verse says, when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. When the leadership is wicked, when the society is dominated by wickedness, those who love and serve God sort of go into decline. They go into hiding, as it were. Consider for a moment what would happen in the nation of China if uh, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party uh, became an evangelical Christian and decided that that was, that was not only uh, uh, okay, it was a good thing and that the, the party stopped pr- prosecuting and persecuting Christians and made, and, and made it so you could be an open Christian and the church could function without state interference. How would that impact the Christians in China? Oh, it it would be radical. You you would see people coming out of the woodwork and the church operating openly. And there would be tremendous rejoicing and celebration. And that's what it's talking about. When there is righteous leadership, the righteous rejoice, the righteous come out, and they seem to grow even in number. And verse 28 is just getting at this same idea. He who, uh, when the wicked arise, men hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. So if we remove evil uh, opposition, then we see an increase in the role of the righteous in the society. Now, I don't know if you saw this week that a high-profile rap artist, and since I don't know anything about rap music, I'm not going to pretend that I know uh, who this guy is at all, but he came out and released a video endorsing President Trump, and that was considered pretty surprising um, because uh, African-American man, and he was he's actually the second uh, high-profile rapper to support President Trump. But it's interesting, what was the logic? Uh, And and the logic was simply this. Uh, I looked at the Biden tax plan and and realized this is going to kill me and I don't want to pay more taxes. Okay, that that was that was the logic. That was all there was to it. Now, I'm not saying that uh, economic prosperity isn't something that we should consider when we vote. But I am saying this is sort of an example of taking a fairly myopic view of what's important in the society. Right? There's so many other things going on that we need to consider. And, and sometimes, as I said before, I think even we as Christians can fall into this same trap. 
And, and, and we can focus too narrowly on what's important. What the text is telling us here is that righteousness, that's the key issue. Right? When, when, the, when the ruler is righteous, when we have righteousness in our society, that is a blessing. And so here's where I think, if, if we're thinking about our civic duty to vote, we're thinking about party platform and which party platforms would, would support righteousness in the society and things like that. But beyond what the role is of the, uh, in, in government sphere, it's to think about our own uh, role in the societies we're a part of, like our families and like this church. And are we valuing righteousness as a number one priority? Are we seeking to promote righteousness in the groups of which we are a part? Because that's what this text is actually pointing for in terms of you and me. And this is a huge challenge, right? If you're a parent, uh, you may be thinking the number one priority is to get my kids a good education. Maybe close to that is to make sure my kids are on good athletic teams, that they have good athletic opportunities. And then maybe thirdly, we should get them some music lessons. And if I do that, I've taken care of my responsibilities. And, and that's not what this is saying. This is saying far more important to those. I'm not saying those aren't important. But in terms of priority, it's teaching my children to love virtue and to, and to desire to be righteous and to understand biblical standards of righteous and, and, and not righteousness and not only to understand them, but to learn to exhibit them and to, uh, and to have them dominate our lives. So this text tells us that a healthy society is one that's characterized by righteousness. Secondly, our text tells us that in a healthy society, sin is dealt with biblically. And we see this in verses 13 and 14 and verses 17 and 18. So verse 13 says, um, let's see, I turned my page there. Verse 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper. So here the idea is a person who's hiding his or her sin. The implication of the verse is we all have sin. It's not a matter of if you have sin or if you do not have sin. You have sin. What do you do with that sin? This is encouraging us to stop hiding our sin. And how do we do that? The second half of verse 13. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Confession and forsaking, turning away from our sin. That's how we uncover. That's how we stop hiding our sins. Commentator Bruce Waltke says it this way, Proper penitence involves a double action. Giving God praise and glory by acknowledging our sins. That's what confession is, acknowledging our sins. And abandoning them. Like That part's important too. We have to turn away from them. Um, in, in, the, uh, in the North Carolina Senate race, this has is, is, is gotten a lot of attention. There's, I think it's the most expensive Senate race in history, the money that's pouring in uh, into this race. But one of the candidates was recently caught uh, in infidelity to his wife. And so instead of withdrawing from the race... Right, saying, I need to get my life in order, I need to work on my family. He solved the problem by releasing a short video 
And in the short video, he says, I'm really sorry. But let's get on with the race and you still need to vote for me. This is not confession in a meaningful sense. Uncovering sin means there's true sorrow and forsaking, as this text says, turning away from it in our lives and in our hearts. That's what this is calling us to do. Verse 14 helps us understand what we're talking about. Happy is the man who is always reverent. This verse is actually an interesting uh, sort of oxymoron because in the original language it's happy is the man who trembles excessively. Right? We would never, uh, in our language, say it that way, right? That, that happiness would, would, would result from constant trembling. But the point is, and the way it's translated in this trans, uh, translation, is a fear of God, a reverence and a respect for God. And so this is what's totally missing from the, the little short video confessional uh, of the politician. Right? Is Where is God in all of this? It's the reverence for God that gives us uh, the basis for true confession and turning away from sin. The second half of verse 14, he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And this is so parallel with what's in verse 13. If you refuse to confess your sin to God and to those who you've offended, it's a manifestation of a hardened heart. And the longer you hang on to your sin, the harder your heart gets. As one commentator writes, sin buried is sin kept. You can't be free from it. You cannot be free from it if you try to keep it inside. The only way to be free from sin is to confess it, is to admit it, and to turn away from it. Verse 17 is related to this. A man burdened with bloodshed will flee into a pit. Let no one help him. This is describing someone who's a murderer, who's so burdened by guilt uh, that he, in essence, commits suicide. And it might be sort of arresting for us to hear them, don't bother him when he's doing that. The point is not don't help a person in need. The point is when God is dealing with someone who's in sin and not dealing with it properly, don't get in the way of God. Don't try to stop or short-circuit the process. The way to help a person in this situation is to agree with God. Say, respond, repent, turn to the Lord, turn away from your sin. And then verse 18, whoever walks blamelessly will be saved, but he who is perverse in his ways will fall suddenly. So again, this mention that we've seen often in the book about walking blamelessly, and we understand there is no such thing as a truly blameless person. But a bla- in this sense, walking blamelessly is seeking to obey God, and then when we fail, acknowledging that, confessing it, seeking forgiveness, and moving on. It's an essential part of a blameless life is recognizing that sin must be dealt with. Now, the founder of the Christian counseling movement uh, is a man named Jay Adams. And I know many of you have read some of uh, Jay Adams' books. And one of his classic books, Christian Living in the Home, talks about how to relate to one another in a way that honors God, and that's biblical. 
And early in the book, he says, or sort of asks a rhetorical question, what is it that makes a Christian home different from a non-Christian home? And I don't know that there's only one right answer to this. And so some people would say, well, there's prayer, or there's the Bible, um, you know, there, there are different things that, uh, that, that there's faith, uh, what's, what's different? What he says, the difference, fundamental difference, is that in the Christian home, there are sinners who know they are sinners, and also know there's a solution for sin through Jesus Christ. And that is what makes all the difference. It's not that there's sinners in the non-Christian home and no sinners in the Christian home. That's not the difference. Because there's sinners everywhere. It's that a Christian home is a place where people know how to deal with sin. They know that the only solution for sin is Jesus Christ. But they also understand forgiveness. 1 John 1, verses 8 to 10, and I did not include these in your outline. John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. So if we're covering our sin, at the bottom of it all is a lie. We're refusing to be honest about who we are. But this verse is so liberating. This, this verse is for Christians. And it's acknowledging that even as a Christian, you are going to continue to sin. Yeah, it shouldn't be that way, but it, it is going to be that way. But what do you do when you sin? You go to God. You confess your sin. And because of the work of Christ you can be forgiven. And that's an ongoing process that needs to happen. But recognize what also needs to happen is not only that you need to seek forgiveness of God, that you need to seek forgiveness of the people that you offend, and you need to grant forgiveness when you are offended by others. As Ephesians 4 verse 34 says, and this is in your outline, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. That's why you forgive others. So now, children, if you're working on your drawing, if you have sinned against your sibling, you should be saying, please forgive me. That's what you should be saying. That's what you need to draw in the little speech bubble above your head. Please forgive me. And then in the little speech bubble above the other person's head, the one you offended, we should draw, I forgive you. I forgive you. Isn't that liberating? That we don't have to bury our sin and just have it eating away at us all the time. That we can get rid of it by confessing it and then granting forgiveness. That's the mark of a healthy society. Is your home 
a healthy society. Is this kind of interaction a regular dynamic in your home? Because if it's not, that's a problem. As we know, it's not because there are no sinners in that house. All that means is that there are sinners who can't admit they're wrong or who don't deal with their sin appropriately. A healthy society is a place where sin is dealt with biblically. Thirdly, we see here that a healthy society values honest work over easy money. We see this in verses 19 to 24. Verse 19, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread. Pretty simple concept. Whatever resources you have, you need to use them. Now, I don't, we don't have very many farmers in our congregation, right? but we get the point. Whatever opportunities, whatever resources, whatever your calling is, it's an opportunity to serve God. You work diligently at doing the thing God has given you to do, and God promises to take care of you. The alternative in the second half of verse 19, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. And that word frivolity can be translated worthless or empty. And uh, the NIV, I think, helpfully translates this fantasies. So if you sit around dreaming of making the big time, however you define that, instead of actually doing anything, you're guilty of what this verse is talking about. And it says you're destined for poverty. So the idea is that the person who is a conscientious worker. Look at verse 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings. A faithful or a conscientious, a person who's honest, trustworthy, dependable in word and deed, doing the work that's been given. Right? That person will be blessed. Second half of verse 20. But he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished, right? So this is often one of the fantasies that we sit around dreaming of, is, is getting rich quickly, of easy money, of having things just happen that sort of alleviate all of our worries and financial concerns. And what follows in the next several verses there are several different ways this manifests itself. In verse 21, it talks about taking bribes and showing partiality. To show partiality is not good because for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. The idea is that you're willing to sell your soul for a trifle because you're, 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 you're trying to make a quick buck. You're trying to go for easy money. Or verse 22, a man with an evil eye. Another way to translate evil eye is stingy. Right? We're not talking about when your mom looks at you and you've been bad kids. That there's, a, there's an evil eye there. That's a sense of an evil eye, right? But that's trying to say, you better not do that. But this is a, a way to speak of stinginess and uh, looking on what others have uh, uh, and looking on it evilly. And a person who's always thinking, what's in it for me? How can I get something out of this? Is a person who often falls into this easy money kind of temptation. Or verse 23, He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with a tongue. So another a way that we go about this is by using flattery. 
to try to get what we want and manipulate situations. And the worst example that uh, this text gives us is in verse 24. Whoever robs his father or his mother and says, it's no transgression, the same is a companion to a destroyer. And this is the person who sinks so low as to actually defraud his own parents. And, and the Bible doesn't say there's a lot of sins that are like murder, but this verse right here saying he's a companion to a destroyer is saying that is as serious as murder. That violation of the fifth commandment where you take from your parents. This is what makes the, the parable, parable of the prodigal son so radical. right? Because that, that's exactly what the prodigal son does in that story. He says to his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me the money that I would get when you die. And then he takes it all and just wastes it. He's robbing his parents. And, and what makes that parable so radical from the Pharisee's standpoint is the father forgives him after that. He comes back and the father actually forgives that heinous sin. But this is what this is getting at. Jesus was dealing this with, with this in his day. In Mark chapter 7, verses 10 and following, which are in your outline, Jesus says, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, it's a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. They made breaking the fifth commandment a virtue. Stealing from their parents was a virtue. They, they said it was a religious thing to do. And this passage we've just read is unequivocal, 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 sorry, in condemning this attitude, this general attitude of making an easy buck. In verse 19, it says it leads to poverty. In verse 20, it leads to punishment. In verse 21, it's no good. In verse 22, again, it leads to poverty. In verse 23, a lack of favor. And in verse 24, death would be implied because that's the penalty for murder. And we know the spirit of easy money is everywhere in our culture today. This is why we have uh, legalized gambling. This is why we have lotteries. This is why you get emails telling you that a Nigerian widow needs your bank account number so that you can help her transfer millions of dollars to the United States. You know why you get emails like that? Because people respond to that nonsense. It's all based on this premise that we are looking for easy money. We're looking for shortcuts. And it's so prevalent that a ridiculous scam like that actually works. And I've read articles about how that works. People will respond, and if you respond, they will interact with you. Somebody will start uh, sending you text even. And, and they'll do this for months if it takes them until they finally win you over and you give them your bank account information. It, it's because of, this is our impulse. How can we trick society? How can we get through without doing the hard work it's a hallmark of a sick society that this is so prevalent among us. A society in which money has become 
an idol. And so how do we combat this? Parents, you need to teach your children the value of work. And children, now I won't ask you to raise your hands, but do you complain when your mom and dad ask you to do chores? Do you complain? You make your bed, you clean your room, you do the dishes. That's one I love at our house. But I did the dishes last night. It's amazing that the dishes actually have to get done every day because we eat every day. It's, it's, it's amazing how that works. You children understand that when your parents make you do chores, they are loving you because you need to work, learn how important, how important work is. This proverb is telling us we can't sit around dreaming about our ship coming in. We need to learn to be diligent. And this applies also to our life in the church. You think about how we think about sanctification sometimes. That that should be just something that happens like this, and I'm free from all my temptations. Sanctification is the same way. We have to work by God's grace day after day. We have to get up again. It's a new day. And we have to battle every day. There are no shortcuts. This is the same way with worship, right? So much of our culture wants a wild experience. Like I come to worship and just I get hit with whatever happens and then I live on an emotional high. And that's not all. That's not the way God works. It's God working through His means of grace week after week, drawing us heavenward through His Word and through the sacraments and through prayer. This is how God works. And how we have to be wired to working. A healthy society values honest work over easy money. Well, fourthly, a healthy society seeks to alleviate unnecessary suffering. Uh, We've seen throughout, the book of Proverbs has much to say about care for the poor and care for the needy. Verse 15, like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. A tyrannical ruler oppresses the poor. is like a terrifying wild animal terrorizing and devouring the people. And people should not live in terror. Verse 16, a ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. So even just being unwise and not having a moral compass is a way in which we can be oppressed by our rulers. The second half of verse 16, but he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. We want leaders who are not leading because they're trying to enrich themselves. That's a big problem. And one of the reasons our country has been so prosperous is throughout its history, compared to other places, being in government service hasn't been seen as a ticket to great riches. Because in many places of the world, once you become a government official, now you're wealthy, your whole family is wealthy, and the whole reason you're in government is to enrich you and your associates. And it's only because that impulse has been greatly restricted in our country that we've done as well as we have over the last couple hundred years. But there's no question that that spirit is alive and well in our government leaders today. And it's not as egregious as it is in different parts of the world. But you ask, how is it 
that people go to Washington, and yes, they get paid fairly well, but they, they end up coming away from their positions uh, multimillionaires, right? the wealthiest people in our society. Why is that happening? It's happening because leaders are seeking to enrich themselves. And this is pointing us away from that. Our focus should be on alleviating unnecessary suffering around us. Verse 27 also deals with this. He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. A generous heart and attitude is needed. And we can't just bury our head in the sand and say, I don't see it. I don't hear it. I don't know what's going on. It's a great challenge in our society, but we have to be asking God to help us think about how we can minister to the needy people around us. I don't know if you get World Magazine, but every year World Magazine uh, gives out its Hope Awards. And the Hope Awards are for what they call effective compassion. And, and effective compassion is not just giving people money, right? And, and it's subsidizing their dysfunction. It's trying to help people in such a way that they become functional, that they actually have a, a God-glorifying life. And this is why so much of this idea that, well, well, we'll give the drug addicts needles, right? We'll give them a shower, but we won't actually try to help them out of their addiction, this is, this is what's going on in, in California right now. Look, go on the website at World and read about what's the Hope Awards this year. A group that's working with homeless people, a group that's working with uh, uh, people coming off drugs and trying to re-enter society, a group that's working on community renewal in an urban area, a group that's working with refugees coming from the Middle East, coming here with nothing. And in every case, it's just average, ordinary citizens. It's not the government. It's average, ordinary citizens who are trying to figure out, how can I help people right here where I am? What's something I can actually do to help them get onto their feet and to know the peace of the gospel? We can think about how we do this even in our own, our own church community here as we support one another, as we recognize needs, there are a lot of needs now because of the, the pandemic. And we have several families who have not been with us since March. And I'm telling you, they are desperately, desperately lonely, some of these families. And it's not a great thing to get in the car and drive down to Bedford and spend an hour with somebody. But we have to think. We have to think. How can I be an instrument of God to alleviate suffering that I'm aware of? We need to ask the Lord to help us do that. That's, that's a sign of a healthy society. And finally... We see here that ultimately it's faith in Christ that produces healthy societies. You might think from you know this passage, well, let's see, if we just have righteousness and a willingness to forgive and we work hard and we care for the needy, boom, we have a healthy society. Of course, this is just a sample. It's not a comprehensive list. 
But if we look around, we realize we don't see this very often. It doesn't, in fact, happen naturally. And our text points us in the direction of it only happens if God is the one doing it. Verse 25, he who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. This is our nature, right? Pride, which doesn't listen to God. Verse 26 says similarly, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. As one commentator says, the self-confident live in a fool's paradise and no one can tell him otherwise. We, we, we trust ourselves. We don't trust God and, and it leads to foolishness. Verse 26, the second half, whoever walks wisely will be delivered. So at the core of this is a need for wisdom. And verse 25, the second half, shows us where that comes from. He who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. That's the issue right there. There's only two choices. Will you trust yourself or will you distrust yourself and trust the Lord? And that's that's where a true healthy society comes from, a trust in the Lord. And this is a good reminder to us. If we trust our covenant God who left heaven, who came and lived a life of perfect righteousness in this world, who came forgiving sin, who came working diligently the whole time he was here, who came loving and caring for the needy. If we trust him, he's the one. Jesus is the one who enables us to be the kind of people that are promoting a truly healthy society. Now, children, we read earlier in the service about Zacchaeus. And understand who Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was working with the Roman government. And he was collecting taxes from his own people. He was extorting money, taking money from the Jewish people so he could be rich. And he was hated. And the reason why Zacchaeus had to climb a tree wasn't just because he was short. It's because nobody in that crowd was going to let him by. A man like him walking in that crowd was just as likely to get stabbed as he was to be allowed to see. He was an evil man. And yet when Jesus comes to his house, he says, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And I think we can read that and we can see, oh, here this guy's trying to clean up around the edges of his life and impress Jesus. But we know that's not what was going on because Jesus follows that up by saying, this man, a son of Jacob, son of Abraham, was lost and has been found. Zacchaeus did not clean up his life so then Jesus came to him. Jesus came to him when his life was a wreck. And when Jesus comes into your life, Jesus transforms it. And Jesus made him into a man who saw immediately the sinfulness of his life. And he turned away from his sin. Not because he was reforming himself, but because Jesus changed his life. 
And that's a good picture for you and me. If we want a healthy society, you and I have to be transformed by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that can allow us to pursue righteousness. That's the kind of kingdom He's building with people He's changing. Jesus is the one that gives you forgiveness and enables you to forgive others. Jesus is the one that can enable you to work faithfully. And Jesus is the one that can enable you to minister to others. So in Christ, in Christ, labor for societies characterized by righteousness and faith. And do this in your home, in your work, in this church, and in our community. Let's pray and we'll ask the Lord to help us do that. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your mercy to us. We are thankful for your word, which describes for us the way of life. We confess that all too often we are not thinking in the right way. And we pray that you would help us to recognize how critical for our relationships is a pursuit of righteousness, is a willingness to forgive, a turning to Christ, and a Lord, a desire to work and to work for those who are needy. And we pray that you would help us apply these truths in our lives, seeing that it is because of Christ and his love for us that we are able to do so. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we respond back to God's word, we're going to actually sing from the red or maroon colored psalm book that you should have under your chair or in front of you for these last two selections. We're going to sing Psalm 107, selection A at the beginning. Uh, here it's just it's a psalm about God gathering his people, gathering them into community and establishing them as his people. And uh, he does this by filling our souls And uh, we give thanks then. That's our response in stanza five. Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 107, Selection A.